Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Reckless Desperados. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 17th, 2015. The more I contemplated the readings for this week, the more uncomfortable they made me feel. Every one of them pushed me in a direction that I did not want to go. All four readings draw sharp boundaries between the blessed people of God, on the one hand, and the cursed remainder of humanity, on the other. Isn't such binary language sanctimonious and self-serving, exclusive in the worst sense of the word, dangerous? It goes without saying that it's politically incorrect. I wonder, does my discomfort with this dichotomy say more about me or more about the biblical narrative? Maybe some of both. Consider the four readings. First, there's Judas from Acts chapter 1. Judas brings out the scapegoat in us. John calls him the child of hell. John also calls his fellow Jews children of the devil and Satan worshipers. Luke says that the wicked Judas got what he deserved. Both Luke and John also say that in his perdition, Judas fulfilled the scriptures. These are awful things to say about someone. We wouldn't and shouldn't say, say such things today. Then there's Psalm 1, which describes two types of people, two ways of life, and two destinies. The wicked, the sinners, and the mockers, says the psalmist, are like chaff that the wind blows away. They will not stand in the day of judgment. The righteous, on the other hand, delights in God's word and his ways, and so whatever he does prospers. Never mind that sometimes the wicked prosper, like human traffickers in Libya, and sometimes the righteous perish, as in Nepal, Yemen, and Syria. The epistle of 1 John contrasts those who believe God and unbelievers who, quote, call God a liar. In short, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. John's sharp boundaries between the living and the dead don't allow for any middle ground. And finally, there's John's Gospel with its many dichotomies. Reading John reminded me of a book by Robert Gundry, a New Testament scholar, with a wonderfully wordy title. It's called Jesus the Word According to John the Sectarian, a Paleo-Fundamentalist Manifesto for Contemporary Evangelicalism, especially its elites in North America. It was published in 2002. Gundry thinks that American evangelicalism is sick 
and that what it needs is a good dose of the strongly sectarian Gospel of John. The Jesus of John, says Gundry, is unapologetically sectarian. Jesus has numerous long discourses in John, most of which are about himself. And what does he say? Well, he's not merely a peasant preacher or renegade rabbi. No, Jesus not only speaks the word of God, he is himself the word of God. He makes absolute and unconditional claims upon those who hear him. In John, those who believe get it and understand, while unbelievers do not. John contrasts those in the light and those in the dark, believers and unbelievers, children of the Father and children of Satan. John, writes Gundry, is using the anti-language characteristic of sectarians. They define themselves over against the world, unbelievers, the non-elect. They form themselves into an anti-society that uses an anti-language. John's Jesus, says Gundry, lives at the margins of society. In John, for example, the world is almost always a negative term. Jesus never eats with sinners like he does in the synoptics. He reveals himself to his followers, but not to the world. And, remarkably, he even says that he prays for his followers, but he does not pray for the world. This anti-worldly message demands an otherworldly life. The one who loves his life will lose it, while the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so Gundry concludes, the church ought to be culturally engaged with the world enough to be critical rather than so culturally secluded as to be mute. Morally separate from the world, but not spatially cloistered from it. And unashamedly expressive of historic Christian essentials, but not quarrelsome over non-essentials. Believers are the ecclesia, called out, the sanctified, i.e. hagiazo, or separated from the world. Peter calls the church a peculiar people. Early critics derided believers as a third race after the first race, Greeks and Romans, and the second race, Jews. But what does this look like in practice? It's unclear to what extent early Christians lived in a sort of sectarian social ghetto, whether self-imposed or forced. Isolated from mainstream Roman society, or the degree to which they slowly permeated the educated and professional classes. We shouldn't generalize, for it depends upon what time and place we're considering. But here, for consideration, are two very different snapshots. Writing in the early 3rd century, the Roman lawyer and Christian Minutius Felix portrays believers as on the social periphery. His short work is a dialogue between the believer Octavius and the pagan critic Cecilius. 
Cecilius complains that Christians just aren't good citizens. He combines class snobbery with sociological insights. Listen to the pagan critic Cecilius. Isn't it scandalous that the Roman gods should be mobbed by a gang of outlawed and reckless desperados? They have collected from the lowest possible dregs of society the more ignorant fools, together with gullible women. They have thus formed a rabble of blasphemous conspirators. They despise our temples as being no more than sepulchres. They spit after our gods. They sneer at our rites. And, fantastic though it is, our priests they pity. Pitiable themselves. They scorn the purple robes of public office, though they go about in rags themselves. You do not go to our shows. You take no part in our processions. You are not present at our public banquets. You shrink in horror from our sacred games, from food ritually dedicated by our priests, from drink hallowed by libation poured upon our altars. Such is your dread of the very gods you deny. You do not bind your head with flowers. You do not honor your body with perfumes, ointments you reserve for funerals. But even to your tombs you deny garlands. You anemic, neurotic creatures, you indeed deserve to be pitied, but by our gods. The result is, you pitiable fools, that you have no enjoyment of life while you wait for the new life which you will never have. If you have not been privileged to understand the concerns of a citizen, you most certainly have been denied discussion of the affairs of heaven. And then there's Tertullian. Writing at roughly the same time, he paints a different picture. He actually boasts that believers had quickly permeated every level of Roman society. Listen to Tertullian. We are only of yesterday, and yet we have filled everything you have. Cities, apartment blocks, forts, towns, marketplaces, even the military camps, tribes, town councils, the pilot, the palace, the senate, the forum. We have left you only the temples. In his next chapter, he hedges his bet and gives a different impression. He writes, We Christians shrink from all burning desires for renown and position. There is nothing more foreign to us than affairs of state. A century after both of these writers, there came a remarkable historical paradox. The greatest persecutor of this church, the Roman state, became its biggest supporter in Constantine, and then the center of its ecclesiastical power, the Roman papacy. With our ultimate citizenship in heaven, believers are what we might call resident aliens. We experience an ambivalent and divided loyalty. 
ultimate loyalty only to the heavenly city of God and its politics of self-sacrificing love, and merely penultimate loyalty to the earthly city of man. In his classic book, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them, from 1984, Robert Wilkin acknowledges that Christians responded to their critics. There was a genuine dialogue, not simply an outpouring of abuse. And the credit, he says, goes as much to the Christians as to the pagans. But credit does also go to our critics. For in their attacks, they forced believers to clarify and develop their particular way of life and thinking. Wilkin concludes with advice that is as timely today as it was two millennia ago. Christianity needed its critics, and it profited from them. For books this week, I review a title by Gary Wills. It's called The Future of the Catholic Church with Pope Francis. New York, Viking, 2015. This book is 263 pages. Can the Catholic Church ever change? To those pessimists who say no, Gary Wills writes, it helps not to know much history. It's a fiction, he says, to believe that the church has had an immutable past, that the church was always what it has become. That's not true. The church didn't always have priests or even popes as we understand them today, or transubstantiation for 1,300 years or papal infallibility for almost 1,900 years. Change is the respiration of the church, its way of breathing in and breathing out. In this book, Gary Wills looks at five ways the Catholic Church has changed across the centuries. First, there's Latin, which used to be thought of as a timeless and common language for a universal church especially in the Latin liturgy and in Jerome's Latin Vulgate Bible. When the reign and role of Latin faded away after Vatican II, though, it was a proof that the church could change in the right direction after so many centuries of harmful change. The church's relationship to state power has constantly changed from persecution to cooperation, coercion, compliance. Christian anti-Semitism has been what Wills calls a tragic absurdity, given that the origins of Christianity were purely Jewish. But genuine progress has been made even on this front, including the acknowledgement that the New Testament documents themselves contain anti-Semitic elements. In his discussion of natural law, Wills explores changing views of contraception, patriarchy, and abortion. And radical change has even come to one of the seven sacraments, penance and, sac penance and confession, 
says Wills, there used to be long lines at confessionals on a Saturday before a penitent could go to communion on Sunday. But now the confessional boxes are being removed or used by church janitors to store their equipment. Gary Wills is both a fierce critic and a devoted member of the Catholic Church. He remains optimistic. Some readers might say too much so. He believes that Pope Francis knows that the Church is not changeless. Rather, he has surprised many people with his words and deeds. He listens to and believes in the laity. Most surprising of all, says Will, is Pope Francis's admission of how bad a Jesuit provincial he had been. And how often have we heard any pope tell us how wrong he was? A pope who admits he's been wrong and who believes in a God of surprises bodes well for the future of the Catholic Church. Gary Wills, The Future of the Catholic Church with Pope Francis. For movies this week, we go to the country of Russia. The title of the film, Happy People, A Year in the Taiga, 2010. The documentarian Werner Herzog turns his unending ethnographic curiosity to an isolated village of 300 people on the Yenisei River deep in Siberia. There are no roads, so the village is accessible only by boat or helicopter. These sturdy people give new meaning to resilience and self-reliance. In particular, the film follows Gennady and Anatoly, who trap, fish, and hunt. They make everything by hand, using traditional tools and techniques. Their huts, traps, dugout canoes, and even their hand-carved skis. This is a life of hard work, severe conditions, and enormous solitude. Herzog's film follows the four seasons, beginning with spring, then the summer with 20 hours of light, autumn, and then the frigid winters. This film would make for excellent family viewing. It's in Russian and English. I watched Happy People on Netflix streaming. Happy People, A Year in the Taiga. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Thomas Aquinas, 1225 to 1274. It's called Lost All in Wonder. Godhead here in hiding, whom I do adore, masked by these bare shadows, shape and nothing more. Sea Lord, at thy service, low lies here a heart, lost all in wonder, at the God thou art. Seeing, touching, tasting, are in thee deceived. How, says trusting hearing, that shall be believed. 
What God's Son has told me, take for truth I do. Truth himself speaks truly, or there's nothing true. On the cross thy Godhead made no sign to men. Here thy very manhood steals from human kin. Both are my confession, both are my belief, and I pray the prayer of the dying thief. I am not like Thomas, wounds I cannot see, but can plainly call thee Lord and God as he. Let me to a deeper faith daily nearer move, daily make me harder hope and dearer love. O thou, our reminder of Christ crucified, living bread, the life of us for whom he died. Lend this life to me then, feed and feast my mind. There be thou the sweetness, the sweetest man was meant to find. Bring the tender tale true of the pelican. Bathe me, Jesus Lord, in what thy bosom ran. Blood whereof a single drop has power to win. All the world forgiveness of its world of sin. Jesus, whom I look at, shrouded here below, I beseech thee, send me what I thirst for so. Some day to gaze on thee face to face in light, and be blessed forever with thy glory's sight. Poetry by Thomas Aquinas. This was taken from a book edited by J. Hopler and Kimberly Johnson. The title of the book is Before the Door of God, an Anthology of Devotional Poetry. New Haven, Yale University, 2013. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 17th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.